Welcome everyone to The Firm Analyst. My name is Adnan and I'm really excited once again for us to be getting into today's episode. Today's episode will be a bit more in depth because the stories that I've personally found have been really interesting and there's a lot of detail to get into. So I really hope that you enjoy it. And obviously it's application season now. So feel free to use some of these stories to go into further depth than I've gone into in this podcast. And perhaps it can give you a bit of an idea of how to respond to those questions of tell us about a story that you found interesting. And perhaps you can even link that to the firm itself. And funnily enough, this was something that really, really helped me in, in my interview. If you can show that you have knowledge about the firm that's targeted, it's relevant, it's important to the clients, then you're really going to stand out in your assessment centers and possibly even shock some interviewers if you do it right. So without further ado, let's get into the stories for today. We're going to be talking about three different stories. The first one being DWF winning a place on Tesco's real estate panel. This is quite significant and we'll get into this and perhaps this will show you the power of lateral hires and the effect that they can have on legal business. The second story that we're going to be talking about is how private equity funds are beginning to get creative with their financing arrangements. And by this, I mean interest rates going up and obviously they've been paused this week. At, I believe it's 5.25%. That's the base rate. But the fact that interest rates have been higher than they have been historically, or at least in the last 10, 15 years or so. This is something that is definitely going to change the landscape of private equity and specifically how these private equity funds are managing their finances. And finally, we're going to look at some sports law in a sort of way, and I'll get into why I call it sports law as opposed to just corporate. But Chelsea raised $500 million from Aris Management, and that is an alternative asset management company. I'm going to get into why this is significant, but also why I think if you're interested in practicing law within sports, just to show you how wide of a range of opportunities that are available within these particular within this particular field, and perhaps to just show you how sports is really becoming a centerpiece for investment, private equity, and alternative asset management. So without further ado, I hope um, you enjoy this episode, we'll get right into it, and I won't take any more of your time. So now let's get into the first story of our podcast. It may seem like a very, very simple story, but I think that there's definitely going to be a lot of possible competition that this story brings about between two particular firms. So the background to the story is this. Tesco like most public companies and large companies, they have a legal panel. The main reason for this is you essentially have a group of lawyers that want to advise you on certain matters and you want to perhaps leverage the skills of certain law firms. And it's also a way to keep prices down because of competition. And we'll get right into this in a moment. But for example, let's say you have corporate matters and you know that, for example, there is uh, Latham and Watkins there to deal with some of your acquisitions. You can choose between them and another firm that also has good corporate capabilities. Or like Tesco, for example, you can look at a firm that's been historically well known for its real estate practice, and that's BCLP. And that's actually the reason why this is so significant is that BCLP was the only firm, I believe, on this panel uh, for the real estate matters for the last 10 years which is quite significant. So DWF has, has essentially come in and they're now on the panel as well. 
And according to people that are familiar with the matter, it's more or less that DWF will have a one-year contract with Tesco that is subject to extension if Tesco is satisfied with their service. And the reason why, again, this is really significant, especially for DWF, is the fact that Tesco has over 3,000 stores across the UK. And this is actually, the scope of work is quite comprehensive in the sense that it involves acquisitions, uh, disposals, leases, sale and lease back, all of these different mechanisms. And that is quite a lot of work. And you can imagine how much a law firm would be charging to negotiate complex leases or to arrange a real estate portfolio or to make some acquisitions or some disposals. There's just generally quite a lot that this will offer DWF and it's quite a significant win for DWF. Now, I don't have any idea about what the pricing arrangements are, but as I mentioned earlier, this is one of those things that will really begin to affect competition because now you have DWF essentially versus BCLP, and I'm I'm assuming that's how it's going to work. There might be certain work that, or there might be a bidding process for the, the particular work that's been given, or perhaps it'll be agreed that, okay, you will do these particular stores or not. But the idea is still, if you perform better than your counterpart on a legal panel, then the chances of you being retained by that company as the law firm to be instructed when A, B, and C happens, then that just means that the the chances of the other firm being given more work are reduced. So there is some de facto competition between these two firms, and it's quite direct. Now, if you can recall from the last episode, we talked about lateral hires, and we've also talked about this before, and we talked about specifically Neil Sachdev and a couple of other partners being taken by a U.S. law firm called Paul Weiss. And that's how they're, they're kicking off their London practice. And just even a follow-up on that story to show you, again, the significance of lateral hires. Eight associates from Kirkland and Ellis left the firm to join Neil Sachdev at Paul Weiss. And that is, that is huge in terms of a loss. You've basically lost a, a good part or a, a very important part of your debt finance team. And that's definitely something that will impact Kirkland and Ellis. So now, if we look at this particular story, the reason why I'm talking about laterals is because the partner in charge of one of the key relationship partners that BCLP had with Tesco, they used to work um, at BCLP, uh, sorry, at DWF, and they were there until September last year. His name is Damien Fleming, and he just moved to DWF literally in September last year. So now you can imagine, that's basically a year of possibly talking to Tesco, having that good relationship manager. And, you know, if you go to DWF, and this is, again, the key selling point of lateral hiring and why people spend so much on it, literally millions, is because now DWF has essentially supplanted BCLP as being the sole provider of these legal services for the past 10 years, and that is very significant. And that speaks to why there's a lot of precedence given to lateral hires, especially if you know that, oh my gosh, this person has A, B, and C as a client. So for Neil Sachdev from Kirkland, Kirkland and Ellis, one of his main clients was Apollo. And if you look at Neil Sachdev's history, one of the reasons why he's really, actually one of, in my opinion, one of the most important debt finance lawyers in Europe, if not the world, is because of the way he altered or campaigned for sponsors within these debt finance transactions in private equity to have a bit more flexibility in their financing arrangements. So for all of the nerds, like, I mean, you can look into a bit further, but it it includes having certain clauses in the contract regarding 
let's say if you miss a financial target, then a private equity fund can essentially pump in some more equity that can make them meet those targets and that uh, that'll essentially make them uh, see it as no longer a breach of covenant. I mean, this, this quite, it's quite complex if you do look into it, but if you're doing your LPC and you do banking and debt finance, you will learn about some of these things because they are quite relevant. But he's really well known for that. And that's why it was a massive loss for Kirkland and Ellis. But this is, again, if we, we look at this particular move and what it means, it just tells you about DWF and how they're also trying to ta- challenge uh, BCLP with regards to its real estate. And if you're applying to either firm, this will just tell you about these clients and perhaps or the choice that these clients make rather about who they instruct is also really significant. So for those applying to BCLP and wondering like, you know, why is this really important to them? BCLP in 2019, according to the lawyer, in a report that it did, it actually discovered that BCLP was earning 30% of its revenue from real estate alone. And even I believe that you have to do a core real estate or real estate finance seat when you're training with BCLP. But if anyone knows BCLP, it's really their bread and butter. But you have other firms like CMS, DLA that are also trying to really <clears throat> move into that field. But apparently, uh, Travers actually was was the one that generated, I think it was 40% of the revenue in 2019 came from real estate. So it can just tell you about these firms and why perhaps they're really looking for these large clients because maybe they've hired quite a lot in these particular areas because they say, hey, this is really generating a lot of revenue for us. So let's double down on that while we get the opportunity um, to perhaps offer more services to this client or more tailored services so we can win more work on these particular panels. So now let's get into the next story. And um, this is actually quite a massive, massive story for private equity. So if if you're applying to a firm that focuses on private equity, so or corporate work more generally speaking, so I'm talking, you know, Kirkland and Ellis, Latham and Watkins, Whale Gottschall, Ropes and Gray, uh, Travis Smith, if you're focusing on those firms, I really highly recommend that you listen to this part of the podcast if you're not going to listen to any other part. And it has to do with how firms are getting creative. And by firms, I mean PE firms are getting creative. And obviously, this is quite important for lawyers because when PE firms have ideas, they're going to come to you and say, how do we make this legally and commercially viable? That's what a lawyer's job is. So let's look at what the context of the story is. We've already talked about this on several episodes before, but there is essentially a lack of access to cheap debt, which is what the private equity industry essentially thrives on. If you want a more in-depth example, you can go to our last episode where we discussed how it has a possibility to increase returns through what's called leveraging. And this becomes really, really important for PE firms and their clients because it's what makes them competitive in the market. And we'll get into to some of these issues a bit later on. But what private equity funds are doing is they're borrowing as funds against their portfolio of companies that they've been purchasing. And by against, I mean like they're offering the shareholdings within these companies as security to banks to be able to reduce the interest rate. And for those who might not understand why this happens, what what tends to happen or how the market communicates risk is by elevating an interest rate. So if we're negotiating, for example, 
um, that, okay, someone is going to borrow my money and this person doesn't necessarily have a good credit background and they're known perhaps to miss payments, then you're going to charge, generally speaking, a higher interest rate if, I mean, because you're, you're of the opinion that this is going to be far riskier, so you need to pay a premium for borrowing my money. And that's exactly what happens with banks in a high, high interest rate environment, more generally speaking. But also, generally speaking, when it comes to private equity and leveraged buyouts, these tend to be far riskier transactions for most banks. And there's all, they're also financed by a range of different ways essentially you have like senior lenders who might have priority in terms of security then you have junior lenders and we'll get into this into in, in a moment about how to finance private equity deals and then sometimes you have high yield bonds uh, or what are called junk bonds and these are the riskier bonds that uh, sometimes go on the market because people just want higher yields and they perhaps have a higher risk appetite but that is essentially the the context behind the story so their response to this was okay if if we borrow through our portfolio companies they're going to smack us with a massive interest rate and if if we do that when interest rates are rising or if interest rates even if they stay the same they're still considerably high or comparatively high compared to in the past then it's not really going to be viable so they've decided to borrow against part of their fund and one particular case that we're going to be looking at is a case study of a company called Finastra. And you might have heard of Finastra, but they are a financial services software company. They work with banks, payment companies, etc. And they offer their technology to these companies and they sell it. And the the owners, or rather the the, the managers or the, the that had this company within their portfolio, they're called Vista Equity Partners. That's a private private equity firm in the US. And they had a particular issue, which is that Finastra had a large amount of debt that was coming to maturity, meaning that the capital on that debt was was becoming due. And usually this can be quite a lot of money. And as we mentioned last time from a cash flow perspective, sometimes you don't have the amount of, or you don't have that amount of money on, on hand to be able to just go ahead and pay all of your capital down. So there's quite a lot that was coming due in the next one to two years. And the answer to this is usually to refinance. And refinancing essentially is using a new loan to pay the old loan. And if you're, if you're looking to become a finance lawyer or even just a corporate lawyer more generally, this, these are really important concepts to, to think about. And why they're, you have to think about why they're important for the client. So if you're refinancing your debt, you're essentially just creating a new debt, uh, borrowing from a new party, or it, could be, or it could be from the same party, but you're delaying the time between having to pay interest now and then obviously paying your capital later. That's the key part of refinancing. So originally they were looking for $6 billion. And this was, it's a significant amount of money and they were actually discussing and having negotiations with some counterparts or a syndicate of lenders that came from, and you can guess it because we've talked about it like a trillion times on this podcast, but it's so topical, private credit lenders. So I believe KKR was involved in that. There's our capital management. They were involved in this transaction. And it was quite a significant tra- uh, uh, transaction, and we'll get into why. But they realized that, okay, 
they're not really, I mean, the, the senior lenders, which are the people that are going to be offered the, the greatest level of security, so they're paid first in the event of a default, or just generally they're paid first. Um, they were fine with this, apparently, according to Bloomberg. But when you look at the, the riskier, what, what is called mezzanine debt or secondly in debt, they weren't really as comfortable. Because if you think about it, think about a syndicate or, you know, led financing in this way. It's like a line. And basically, whoever's at the front of the line, they get paid first. And if, let's say, the borrower doesn't have enough money, at least the person at the front will have, whether it's their cents on the dollar, at least they're getting something. But if you're behind them in line, you could get nothing. That's how this lead financing works. So they weren't really comfortable with these terms, and they, they said that you might have to reduce your debt in other areas. And there's a lot of speculation, so I can't really comment about what actually happened, but it's safe to say that what Vista Equity Partners said that they have to do is they'll reduce the amount that they're looking to, to refinance to $5.3 billion, but they're going to have to raise additional funds to pump into this company, Finastra, through other means. So what they did is, it's, it's quite a creative solution from a finance perspective, and you can see how finance lawyers are easily looped into this to work with financial advisors and, you know, uh, other parties to be able to make this happen. But essentially what happened is that they uh, brought in a, a syndicate of lenders <clears throat> uh, led by Goldman Sachs, and they borrowed $1 billion from them at the fund level, meaning that the portfolio of companies was, or some of those companies at least, were put as security for that. So that means that they got a lower rate of interest on, on, on that particular loan. And this is actually called, it's called a net asset value loan. So they borrowed $1 billion and they essentially pumped that into Finastra as preferred debt or preference shares. And these are a hybrid between equity and debt, but essentially you, you pump money into a company instead of, generally speaking, instead of those shares participating in the profits and uh, gaining a dividend, that's related to the performance of the company, get a fixed amount that's payable at regular intervals <clears throat> if the company has money to pay those dividends. And if they don't, then they usually accrue over time. So that's how they did it. And that was enough to convince the lenders within that second lien or mezzanine area that, okay, this is a sufficient write down of the risk and we're willing to take this on. And the result was the largest private credit transaction in U.S. history. And it gets even more interesting, and I'll get into the firms that advised on this. So if, you're, if you want to talk about this in your applications, you can definitely look at this and I'll tell you how I found that information. But this was quite, this is one of those transactions that really shows you the importance of innovation in, in times of difficulty, especially for PE firms. And lawyers are absolutely critical to this process and in advising on how to structure this, how these clauses are going to be drafted. And it's usually senior associates and partners that will be doing this high-level thinking, but it's not it's not really unheard of for trainees to just, you know, get involved at quite an early stage and perhaps even just chip in a few ideas here and there. So this could be something that you really look into, but it's something you'll develop over your career. But let's now look at the firms that that, that advised and how I was able to find this information. So uh, Kirkland and Ellis was advising Finastra, which is one of those, again, portfolio companies. So they're basically 
de facto acting for Vista Equity Partners. And you can see how this U.S. relationship, the fact that Vista is in the U.S. and KNE is also quite uh, well established in the U.S., you can see how they were able to uh, get some of these clients. But now they're advising a portfolio company located in the U.K., about this particular transaction. And Davis Polk was advising uh, key parties in the syndicate of lenders. And some of you might be asking, okay, well, how do you find this? You can probably try and search it online and you might end up with a few things, but Google can give you a range of um, answers. But what I did is I just went to company's house. I looked at Finastra and this is something you can do in your free time if you're an absolute nerd like myself. Um, You can look at the charges so go to company's houses a company's house look at company information and then go to charges and then you'll see um <clears throat> what are called debentures and these are documents that essentially just legally codify the security that a company is giving to a bank and it just lists all of the assets that it's going to give <clears throat> so for example in this one i think i saw it was kirkland and ellis that drafted uh, they were using a kirkland and ellis precedent and they usually do this all the time they usually just stamp it with their precedent and um, it mentioned that davis polk was the one that delivered it and certified it that the information was true so i won't get into why um, these documents are submitted to company's house but all i'm telling you is if you really want to look into a deal and dissect it company's house is there there's so much public information out there that you can use to, to add depth to your knowledge so if you're asked about a deal it's not just like okay i found this interesting because it was a big company and they lent a lot, a lot, large amount of money and Kirkland Ellison advised X and Y and Z. You can, if you actually look at the documents themselves and perhaps try to understand them, you will have a more nuanced take on it. But actually, I might as well go very briefly into perhaps why they do it, because you might be asking, oh, this, is this not confidential information? Um, long story short, um, when you're registering charges at company's house, you have to submit a certified um copy of a document to just uh, essentially put people on notice, other lenders on notice that, hey, we have this particular interest in this company's assets because we're charge holders over that. And for other reasons that you'll probably learn uh, throughout the LPC, or feel free to contact me and um, I'll, I'll give you some more information about it. But it generally has to do with something called a negative pledge clause and giving lenders notice of that. So now let's get into our final story of this podcast. I hope you've been enjoying it so far. And this story has to do with Chelsea. So for all of the Chelsea supporters or for all of the sports law nerds out there, this is quite a significant development in a trend which has been developing for the last maybe five, ten years as well. We're starting to see a lot of interest, especially from international investors, in football clubs across Europe. And you're finding private equity firms, you're finding um, alternative asset managers investing into sports teams in the hopes that they can possibly sell their stake in those teams five to, to seven years into the future. And here are just a couple of examples of this particular trend. You have the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund doing things like in initiating a merger and actually they bought live golf and you know they've they've tried to combine it with pga etc and that's obviously brought up antitrust concerns and that's i guess a topic for another episode perhaps but then you also have them leading a consortium of investors to purchase newcastle united and 
I mean, just recently we had Everton literally last week being bought by Triple Seven Partners. And um, just to give you an example of some of the law firms involved, we have uh, Farhad Mushiri being advised by Northridge. And uh, really, if you're interested in sports law, you have to look at Northridge. They do have a trainee program. If that's your life's calling and you want to become a sports lawyer, then do have a look at that as well. Uh, BCLP was advising one of Everton's lenders and uh, Pence and Masons was advising Everton. And word on the street is that Norton Rose Fulbright was advising uh, their long-term client, Triple Seven Partners. Um, and then also in, in just another example of, you know, football specifically or just sports being something that a lot of people are looking at uh, more closely now. You have Barcelona deciding to spin off its media um, and it's been, I believe they own the rights to a lot of the media that has been produced by Barcelona in the last uh, 20 years or so. They've decided to spin off and um, they're working with a SPAC company named Mountain & Co. And they're planning to list that media arm for what's anticipated to be valued at over $1 billion. And they're going to list that on the NASDAQ. And um, that is quite significant. But as, I, as I've just listed, like there's so many different examples of you know, these companies um, coming under the, the eyes of private equity firms and asset managers across the world. So it's, it is very, it's a very interesting area. I would actually argue if you're looking to get into sports law, this just illustrates to you that sports law is very wide. There's no, I would actually go as far as arguing that you don't necessarily need to qualify into a certain area to become a sports lawyer. Just like when people ask me, oh, so how do I do Islamic finance? Or how do I do X area? How do I do space law? There's so many different aspects to those areas that you can basically be a generalist or you could just go into something like corporate, for example. And you'd be surprised. You can be a corporate lawyer that specifies or specializes rather in sports. You could be a real estate lawyer that specializes in sports. You could be an IP lawyer that specializes in sports or a commercial contracts lawyer. But there's obviously some like perhaps commercial contracts and corporate that are most malleable that you can really, even 10 years PQE if you wanted to, just decide, oh, you know what, I've decided to develop a niche for sports and you can begin to start chipping away at that market. So if you are looking to get involved in sports law, this is something really interesting I, I encourage you to look into. And perhaps listen to this story if you're going to be applying to a firm like Northridge or any other firms um, involved in these types of transactions. So to give you a bit more background to this particular transaction of Chelsea raising £500 million from Aris Management, um, which is an alternative asset manager, um, we need to look at what's been going on at Chelsea. And obviously, this is not trying to hit out at Chelsea, or it might be me trying to hit out at Chelsea, hint, hint, I'm a Manchester United fan, uh, but we're going to look at some of the reasons why Chelsea wanted to do this race in the first place. And perhaps that encourages us to look at uh, this transaction from the perspective of Chelsea itself and its investors, like uh, Clearly Capital and Todd Bowley, uh, who are some of the main investors in Chelsea and owners of Chelsea as well, alongside a consortium of investors. So let's look at some of the main challenges. You know, if you're running a football team, how do you actually make money? Because this is one of those major things that a lot of people forget, is that football or golf, whatever it is, fundamentally, you are actually a business. And this is what you need to understand. So let's look at the different ways in which a football team can make money. 
the most obvious one is by winning games and by winning leagues, by winning competitions or qualifying, because there's obviously prize money involved. That's one of the main ways that football teams make money. Another thing has to do with, for example, sponsorship. So you could have sponsorship, and this is something that you're looking at mainly from the perspective of the stadiums, like you know, you have those signs and everything being shown, and then on the actual shirts, so a front of shirt sponsor, and actually in relation to Chelsea, they've actually struggled to conclude a new deal for a front of shirt sponsor, and this is again something that the FT is saying uh, will usually bring in tens of millions of pounds uh, to the to the football team. And then, of course, you have things like selling tickets. You have things like selling IP rights to certain companies like EA Sports that uh, they've actually taken on FIFA. And even if you just notice something, for example, if, if you guys were, were gamers, if you had PES or if you had FIFA, if you looked at the teams, they were named differently. And that's probably, I think, anyways, to do with the IP. So if you were playing PES, you'd, you'd play with Man Red or Man Blue. It would be not. It wouldn't be Manchester United or Manchester City. And that's probably because of exclusive rights that were given to EA, um, and basically that's what they were looking at. Now, in addition to IP rights and, you know, for example, just selling tickets, there is there's so many other ways to make money, especially if you have things like you know advertisements that you're doing. There's just so many ways to make money, and that means that there's a lot of background work that needs to be done. And I'm pretty sure you can see by this that now there'll be a lot of commercial contracts work, especially if you're selling players. That's another way to make money as well. Uh, if you're buying a really popular player, and then that can be someone that you're using in advertisements and things like that. There's just so much that you can essentially do with that. So now let's look at Chelsea's main challenges. So last season, Chelsea finished 12th and they weren't able to qualify for the Champions League. And that obviously means less prize money. And it's quite a lot of prize money, especially if you go to, let's say, the semifinals or the finals. And there's a lot of like you know, groundwork that needs to be done if you're going to that particular stage. And it is quite rewarding for a lot of these teams. And for this season, they've only won around 20% of their games and they've had many changes of managers and another major challenge that you, they're looking at is upgrading their stadium. So Stamford Bridge only accommodates around 40,000 fans. And as I said earlier, you can make a lot of money from selling tickets, selling drinks, all of these different things at, at football games. Now, if you build a larger stadium, obviously that's going to be a really large sunk cost. But over the next 10, 20, 30 years, if your team continues to remain popular then you've actually increased the amount that you're selling for tickets. And some of these games, I mean, I'm pretty sure you're aware, if if you're attending some of these games and they're really, really popular, they can be really, really expensive, those tickets. And now imagine if you're making that sort of money or the cheapest ticket is like, you know, a certain amount of pounds, you're, you're making, you are guaranteed, if it's a very popular game, to essentially be earning that minimum amount, plus obviously you have the higher tier tickets, etc. That can be a really good source of revenue for you and what they've done in response to this is actually they've said that we need to step back and we need to reduce the operating expenses of Chelsea by 
up to a hundred million pounds per year. That's a lot of money. So perhaps they're looking at reducing whether it's salaries, um, that's what they've said, or just looking to maybe even make some disposals. Maybe you might find that they're selling certain IP rights. But one of the key things that they needed was liquidity. And obviously borrowing in this environment is just really, it's not really conducive. So that's another major issue that you need to think about when you're raising capital. And we talked about this, I think, two episodes ago or three episodes ago. And we talked about how businesses have to get creative how, with how they're raising money when interest rates are high. So they, they reached out to Arrows Management and they asked for £500 million. And the way this is structured is by way of preference shares, which I've already explained how, how those work. So for the preference shares, the key thing that you need to remember is like it's it's a hybrid between equity and debt. So you need to just look at it from that particular perspective and think about this will be most likely a debt liability um, on Chelsea and that might increase certain pressures on them to make even more money. But at the same time, sometimes those shares will get voting rights under certain circumstances as well. And this is a key thing as a lawyer that you'd probably be advising um, your client on. So even let, let's let's actually get into that and talk about how to structure these types of investment. So if you're interested in ECM corporate, this is a really key part of the podcast. So obviously you want to look at, first of all, how what instrument you want to use to facilitate the investment. There's so many different ways of doing it. You know, it can be a simple agreement for future equity where you're essentially paying now and essentially buy now, get shares later. That's what I call it. And um, you could have, uh, but that's mainly for early stage companies and it's where valuation issues are concerned mainly. Or you could just do it through pure equity or perhaps you might have convertible loan notes, which are basically debt securities that can convert into shares under certain circumstances. Or you can go straight for the preference share, which is you get your equity, but it's more behaving really like debt. And then another thing you need to consider is something called preemption rights. So in statute, when you're issuing new shares, um, generally speaking, what will happen is that the default position is that um, you will have shareholders, let's say you have someone that's a 40% shareholder, the way statute has, has, has made it is that that person gets a right of a first refusal. You have to offer them the shares before you can offer them to anyone else, unless you decide to disapply preemption rights. And that's usually a decision that's left for, for the shareholders. Or you can disapply it in your articles, and we'll get into that in a moment. But the main idea is that this is a very key thing as a corporate lawyer, looking at protecting people's interests. So if it's in the company's interest, you have to ask yourself, well, do we benefit from having really strict statutory preemption rights? Or are we do we want to make it more liquid? Are are our shareholders okay with possibly getting diluted? And these are conversations you usually have back and forth with shareholders and their advisors. And you on the other hand have the company and their advisors, the directors, etc. And these different other shareholders. These are massive discussions because fundamentally Business, to an extent, can also be politics, especially when voting rights are involved uh, and attached to shares. So if you look at Chelsea, for example, and this is what I'm saying by really dissect the deal, you can go onto the, I think it's Chelsea FC Holdings Limited, which I believe is Chelsea's holding company, and just have a look at their articles of association, which is basically the equivalent of the company constitution. And you can see that when, uh, first of all, they were produced by Latham and Watkins, and this was 
when the takeover happened and they, they were bought out by uh, Tomboli. And um, I believe, who else was it? It was Tomboli as in clearly capital as well. Um, so Latham and Watkins created these, but they also removed preemption rights for, for like statutory preemption rights. So that I think has to do with just making it easier to raise capital. So if you're really interested, have a look at Article 29 of, of those particular articles. Then another risk that you can face or something that you need to consider as lawyers is valuation issues. Obviously, a company has to be valued. And some people would say, to an extent, this is a subjective process. You have to have a a, a contractual mechanism for determining the value of a company and what value that you're going to be issuing shares at. And this is a key thing to, to, to really keep in mind. And um, you need to really look at how to deal with the risk of over or underpaying for shares, depending on who you're representing. Also, you need to look at certain rights attaching to the, to the shares themselves. And also, if there's a group of companies, you need to look at which company is going to be housing the fund. So there's a range of risks. And even for things like preemption rights, like one thing that people do is like for, I believe, preference shares, you don't even need to, if they're not participating in the profits, I don't think you need to have uh, preemption rights applying to those particular ones. But these are all things you'll be, you'll be thinking about if you're doing a corporate seat. And it, that's why I think some people really like it because there's so much involved. There's many different parties. You have to really consider who wants what. And then from there, you can really begin to structure really interesting investments um, for certain funds or for private equity companies or just general shareholders in general. So that's why I find this story interesting. It talks to you about the importance of sport and why PE firms and asset managers are looking into them. But it also involves a lot of interesting structuring regarding the investments. So I think that's just about it for this story. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Firm Analyst. Believe it or not, we are almost done with season two. And by the end of the season, I'm going to look at how far we've reached. We've, we've really broken some of my own personal records regarding podcasts. So I'm really, really happy with the response that we've received. And... I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or if you're on the same WhatsApp groups that I'm on, TMC um, or Muslim Lawyers Hub, feel free to reach out to me and I'm more than happy to have a conversation subject to my availability. And yes, next week is our deep dive episode and we're going to be looking at law firms being listed and how that's really been responded to. Like why do law firms decide to list which law firms are listed, what's happened to law firms that are listed. We're going to take a, a really a laser point approach to looking at DWF as our case study because they listed in 2019 and just about four years later, they're being taken private by Inflection Equity Partners and that is a private equity firm. It's a mid-market private equity firm. And we're going to be looking at the motivations for that. And we're going to do, by deep dive, I mean a proper deep dive. We're going to look at some of the public documentation that's out there. And perhaps if you're applying to DWF, I highly recommend that you listen to that episode. So thank you so much and have a wonderful week ahead of you.